those people might say, yeah, I'm kind of burnt out on celebrity brands. And the other 50% would say, I rely on that because it's so incredibly difficult to sort through the noise of infinite product that at some point a human adjacency that I know what they stand for and I know what they trust is massively helpful in making purchase decisions. So I actually think we're going the other way. I think as the as direct to consumer gets harder and there's more and more product coming into the market and it's more difficult to advertise, human faces behind these companies that are recognizable are going to be really important customer acquisition tools. I think it'll make the difference between brands that really thrive and those that just kind of chug along. So I think we're entering into very much a golden age. Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, Editor-in-Chief of Glory Media, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from each other, the question remains the same. What's your mission? Hi, Leonard. How are you today? I am good. How are you doing? I'm so well. I wish it was nicer outside, but you know what? It's uh, it's that time of the year, so what can I say? And we live in Canada, so it comes with the territory. <laughs> fair, fair. I'm so excited for our chat because I love any kind of discussion where you can really kind of dive deep into really like the intersection between commerce and culture and how those things collide between each other. So I think we're going to, uh, it's going to be a fun chat today. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Thanks a lot for having me. Um, let's start with a quick icebreaker. Um, if there was a biopic made about you, who would you want to play you and what era of your life would you want it to focus on? Uh, I want Danny DeVito to play me. <laughs> That's who I want. I want Danny DeVito and I want yes. him to play me as a child while he's an adult. <laughs> I love that answer. That's amazing. Um, that's the best answer I could hope for, for that. So you have, you know, obviously a, a very storied entrepreneurial journey that has really established you as an expert, um, of marketing and brand building. But I think for the purpose of today's chat, I really want to focus on where you are today. And, um, so, you know, you're the co-founder and executive chairman of Caravan, which quote, co-founds companies authentically powered by the world's most iconic artists and athletes. What's the elevator pitch, uh, and how does it work, uh, for someone that's not aware of, of, um, what Caravan is. Yeah, so Caravan is a joint venture uh, with Creative Artists Agency in Los Angeles. So we founded the business together. And the intention was uh, to build, and what we've created is a studio that builds science-backed or technology-backed consumer brands. Ideally, we focus on health and wellness wherever we can. And we do that, and we co-found that with CA clients. And so we, we originally focus on market need first. So we're looking at, is there something that the world needs? Can we make it 10 times better than anyone else? And then we worry about the connection to the artist. Uh, but we start really with the premise of the same way a venture capitalist would think about it. And we do that with the blessing and, and great partnership of having CA as our partner. Yeah, definitely. And so are you... Where I guess like where, what's the starting point? Like you're, you're looking, f do you try to source and find entrepreneurs that are building things that can then be paired with a celebrity or have like celebrity involvement, or are you looking for a celebrity first and trying to find out, you know, how they would be a good fit? Where does that, how does that work? Yeah. So, so the ideation kind of happens multiple ways and like anything, there's always exceptions to the rule, but for the most part, we generally build everything ourselves. So we don't operate in the way you would think of a venture studio operating where they're looking to partner with young entrepreneurs and bring them in. Generally, we're coming up with the conceptual side, we're doing the research, we're doing the data work. Then once we figure out, we think we've got something we wanna scope and build, then we'll often bring in product people to build that. 
And then if we like it, then we'll typically bring in an entrepreneur to help drive the business. Mm -hmm. So we tend to, we tend to come in a little bit earlier and we bring in entrepreneurs slightly later than a traditional studio would do. But to answer your question about uh, talent, we often field um, ideas that come from clients all the time. Generally, we're focused on starting with a market opportunity first. Like we, we look to answer some core questions. One, like really does this, does the world need this? Like, does the world need another fragrance? Does the world need another skincare company? Um, and if we feel like the answer to that is yes, and, and that there's a really good premise, then we look at, is there a science or technological basis that's a protectable moat for the business? Is there a formulation or a patent to it? Um, a new way of a new method of doing things or a new demographic that's underserved. And then once we test that out, we then start to map that to the clients that we think are authentically connected to that problem and try to build something that's 10x better than what's in the market today. So we, because we, we're always looking at it from the perspective of an exit, because at the end of the day, we have outside investors and in what we do. And, you know, anyone to tell, you know, lots of people in the venture business will say, well, we're doing it for passion and we're doing it to change. But the truth is we have to exit these companies at some point because we are a financial instrument and a fund. And so we're always keeping one eye on that as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's super, super interesting. Um, and so, you know, I, I feel like in the last few years, especially, it seems like everywhere you look, there is like a new celebrity brand being churned out. You know, you've got Ryan Reynolds, Dwayne Johnson, Rihanna, Lady Gaga, Kim Kardashian, um, you know, the list kind of continues. Are we in this kind of golden age of celebrity entrepreneurship or conversely, do you see any signs of like consumer fatigue or even like cynicism around the idea of celebrity entrepreneurship? Yeah, I, I think you have to go back a little bit to think about what it means when you talk about celebrity entrepreneurship, because there's there's really two universes. There's licensing and endorsement, and then there's traditional entrepreneurship. And licensing and endorsement are often and can sometimes be presented as companies, even though they're not really companies. They're a licensed deal with a manufacturer or a retailer, and they're very effective. You know, like they're they're incredibly effective for all parties in those transactions. It's just not what we do. So if you go back to the early, early days of what used to be seen as celebrity and you know celebrity entrepreneurship, like Liz Taylor and Diamonds and Jessica Simpson's company, they were mostly licensing and endorsement deals. And there's a long history uh, of that happening over the last 50, 60 years. What's changed in the last decade is clients getting really involved in true entrepreneurship, meaning they're the vendor, they found the company, it's their capital and outside capital. They're building a business that they're selling to multiple people and they have significant ownership in the business. And, and they're doing it for the same reason many people do it, which is to service a need and to exit the business and have a good economic outcome. And I think that changed 10 years ago when social became a credible place for artists and athletes to speak directly to their audiences. Mm -hmm. And if, if you think about that, and you just go down that, that lane for a second, you know, many of the clients at CAA have larger audiences direct than traditional media companies have. So you may have clients that have larger direct audiences that they speak to every day than any news organization in the United States or Canada for that matter. So I think that's when it shifted. And as you started to see the more modern versions of that happening with Ryan Reynolds and aviation and uh, George Clooney in, in, in his brands, I think that's when people started to think, okay, I want to look at this a bit more seriously. And so it's a, it's a bit of a long way to look at it, but it's important in the context of thinking like, are people, are, is there too many of this? So mm -hmm. that's kind of the history of it. And when it comes to the side that we sit on, which is truly entrepreneurial backed companies, um, it's been a short history. You know, it's been about a decade. There are lots of them and they don't all work. And it's very dependent on the context of the industry and the partner and who they are and is the product good? Because at the end of the day, you could put 
the biggest talent in the world on a product that's crappy and inevitably it will die. So that's why we always start with that focus of, does the world need it? Can we make it 10X better? Then we worry about the audience and the, and the feed. The other thing that you have to be careful of too is it's, it's very common that, that talent will build a company and they'll do it based on their own interest, which is important. Like the, the client has to be super interested in, in, in the product, but if the audience isn't, that's a massive problem. So simply because you're interested in knitting doesn't mean, and you're passionate about it, doesn't mean that your audience cares or sees you as credible in that space. Mm -hmm. So I don't think, I do think there's some burnout. It's, it's an interesting dichotomy. It's kind of a, it depends who you talk to, but if, if you had a hundred people in a room, 50% of those people might say, yeah, I'm kind of burnt out on celebrity brands. And the other 50% would say, I rely on that because it's so incredibly difficult to sort through the noise of infinite product that at some point a human adjacency that I know what they stand for and I know what they trust is massively helpful in making purchase decisions. So I actually think we're going the other way. I think as the as direct-to-consumer gets harder and there's more and more product coming into the market and it's more difficult to advertise, human faces behind these companies that are recognizable are going to be really important customer acquisition tools. I think it'll make the difference between brands that really thrive and those that just kind of chug along. So I think we're entering into very much a golden age. Yeah, very, very interesting. And I guess building on that, you know, when we talk about influence and being in this age of the influencer, what do you think it means to be truly influential from your standpoint? Yeah, it's, I think there's two pieces of it that you have to, well, there's three pieces. There's reach, credibility, and conversion. Those are your three, at least the way we would look at it. So reach is really your size and demographic. So it's, you know, Lance, you have a huge audience and the audience is really uh, focused on Canada and uh, X demographic leaning, Y age. So what's the total volume and reach? Then the question is going to be credibility on a specific subject. So are you, because you may have a massive audience, but they're ab you're absolutely not credible on things like fragrance or health or medicine or, so what's your credibility lane? What's the size of your audience and influence? And those two things are kind of your initial gate. And then you want to look at conversion. So how have things traditionally converted that they've marketed? Because you can be credible, you can have a massive reach, but you can have terrible conversion. Mm-hmm. And so that I think are the, those are the three layers. And so when you think about true influence, you know, you could always, I could give you the ephemeral answer, which is like somebody who has the ability to change and impact a decision you make. True. That is a definition of it, but, but we prefer to focus on those three angles of it because that is at the end of the day, while I may influence your decision, if I don't convert and I don't have credibility, it's kind of irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess like speaking to kind of one of your previous points around starting with like market fit and market need, um, obviously like that is informed by culture and, you know, what people are interested in, in some ways and what's happening. So I guess what is your approach to tapping into, you know, the, the current zeitgeist around culture on any kind of given day or moment and how you harness that culture to, you know, fuel commerce. Yeah. I mean, this is where CAA is just a massively, massively important part of this story, because I think when you think about an agency like creative artists, the first thing you think about is the reach of the clients. And that's of course a, a huge part of the story, but the part of the story you don't hear as much about is the intelligence and the consumer intelligence that flows through that building. And I would argue that CAA is air traffic control for some of the most important consumer data in the world, especially mm. consumer data that intersects with pop culture. And so just by being connected in that building and the amount of info that's flowing through there from, you know, who's fronting the next Star Wars movie and what studios are betting on what trends and 
you know, CA works very closely with a lot of the retailers and a lot of the traditional CPG and FMCG firms. So like, what's Pepsi thinking about? What's Coke thinking about? What is Walmart thinking about? What are they seeing? So you've got all of that collective cloud of knowledge that we get access to. And secondarily, <clears throat> we have a group inside CAA called CAA Intel run by an incredible guy named Andre Vargas. And there's quite a bit of data that's really put into a scientific um, analysis around audience segmentation, trending, brand affiliation. So there's a bit of the art and there's a bit of the science. But, I, but we try to look at that as the background and that's how we, how we look at opportunities. Um, you know, to give you an example of that, we started seeing both in social measurement, traditional trending and purchase habits, and then at our own work that we did at CEA and Caravan, that shower was going to become a really big category. And it was it was interesting because, you know, three years ago, if I said, yeah, we're going to build a shower company, you'd be like, okay, whatever. But when you think about it, <clears throat> shower just is this huge market. It's, you know, it's got a TAM of kind of seven to nine billion a year and growing naturally. And it had always been seen as this utilitarian thing. But if you started following on social, you would see that there were all these sub memes coming out about showering during COVID, like, you know, restroom relaxation, the everything shower, shower talk, all this stuff. It was really having a moment. And we looked at that and did a whole bunch of first party research. What we found was really interesting that we felt this was a moment when shower was going to transition kind of like mattress and luggage did mm. from being these like potato sacks on wheels to lifestyle products. And shower has the added benefit, much like mattress, of having huge impact on your health, mental health in particular, uh, hair, skin, beauty. So we built a company called High, which is really the smartest shower in the world. And we did a whole bunch of really cool stuff with it. But that all came out of the zeitgeist that we learned inside CEA and from monitoring social and building that out. So we're very much in the channel on that. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. I noticed that when I was um, doing my research on the on the company site. Uh, I also noticed that you know on all of the company descriptions, the word authentic is used a lot, and I imagine that's done very intentionally. So, um, what does that word? mean in your world and in this context? Yeah, I think, I think it's got two meanings. One meaning is that the, the, the founder who is the artist and talent that co-founds the company with us has to be authentically interested in the space and credible in the space. It can't come across as a money grab or being opportunistic. Like they, they have to really be interested. So if we're building a skincare company, that skincare company is, um, targeting a specific demographic, they need to be in that demographic and they need to have that skincare problem and be, have been historically vocal about it or talked about it. That's the, the best authenticity is you're in the demo. You've historically talked about this particular issue. Here's your solution. That's a really good authenticity chain. And then I think secondarily authenticity has to do with the product itself because the founders can be authentic, but if the product is seen as lazy or ill thought through or not innovative, you can break that chain of authenticity very quickly because you could have the greatest dermatologist in the world solve a problem or the greatest master brewer. But if the product seems lazy and poorly thought through, it doesn't matter who they are. So and credibility and that trust kind of wears down erodes. Yeah. So I think too many people focus on the authenticity of the talent and not enough on the authenticity of the product that the talent is delivering. Yeah. Very, very interesting. And so when we talk about brands that um, enter into these kinds of unique partnerships with talent and celebrities, um, how do you think businesses or how should businesses think when it comes to approaching a celebrity partnership and in what ways can that manifest because you spoke previously about you know licensing but there's also endorsement and then there's also you know true partnerships so kind of what are the different layers and levels and tiers that uh, are involved in this kind of relationship yeah so go, go back to that wall that i was separating between endorsement licensing and building a company so if you look at what we do which is building companies 
from scratch. That focus is entirely on that celebrity or athlete is the founder with us. So they are playing a very specific operational role and marketing is part of it, but in some respects, it's not the biggest part of it. Many of them are keenly interested in the design front. Uh, we built a company uh, with Carrie Underwood called Fit52 and Carrie has been a massive advocate for her entire life of how fitness has changed, fitness and wellness has changed her life. And so she's very involved in <clears throat> exercise design, product design, like she's really in the business. So I think when you look at that side of building a company, you want to make sure that this is some, like you would pick a business partner. Like, is this someone I can work with? Is this someone who's taking it seriously? You want to know asshole rule generally. Mm. And you want to make sure that if a co-founder is a celebrity, that you're going to have a direct line of communication. You don't want middle people, you know, have to speak to a manager and an agent and a lawyer to get through to somebody who's your business partner. Like if you and I co-founded a company, I wouldn't expect to talk to your lawyer about making decisions or your agent, you know, we talk directly. So I think that's really important on that side. If you go to the other side of the fence, which is licensing and endorsement, I think the considerations are a little bit different. I think you're looking at, uh, metric driven outcomes immediately. You're like, what's the size of this person's audience? What's their credibility? Are they going to bring people in store? So if, let's say it's a retail partnership. In, and, and these are not things we do, but just to give you an insight on that, I think if you're Target, Walmart, Canadian Tire, and you're, you're doing a celebrity licensed product, you want to answer questions like, How's this going to affect my digital traffic? How's this going to affect in-store? Will they show up and talk to buyers? Like part of the talent's contribution to that is, can I go to a buyer and merchandising meeting and show up and be engaging and have conversations with them about the product and let the staff and the people on the floor feel really connected to the product and the person. So those things become really important. The Kool-Aid. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Speaking of which, have you ever had a guest drinking Hawaiian punch on your Oh my God. <laughs> probably not on your first. Um, you're probably wondering what this red juice is. It's not, it's not booze. It's Hawaiian punch. Love it. Love it. Um, so, so look, I think those are the things you're looking for and they're very different financial outcomes. One is very time restricted and very metric, like sales driven because you're not looking to exit it. You're building a brand, you're trying to fill a slot in a store or a skew base in a, in a manufacturer. And that's typically a one-year relationship, six-month relationship, and it's sales-driven. Whereas what we're doing is very much company building and longer term and outcomes are pushed out a little bit longer. Right. And what about the instances where, because, you know, we're talking about uh, instances where a celebrity joins at the, you know, the onset of a company at the very beginning as a partner. But what about the instances where a foundation has been laid and there is a, a talent or a celebrity that is interested in being uh, entering that level of partnership afterwards, like, say, for example, Ryan Reynolds and aviation. Like that was a company that existed before he wasn't there, you know, when they started it. So what are some of those considerations to have in mind? Um, and I guess those kinds of two different scenarios. Yeah. I, I, I think you will see a lot more of that, by the way, I think right now in the consumer market, especially things that are physical goods, regardless of the category, if it's F and B or alcohol or, beauty and cosmetic, I think you have a lot of companies that are going to struggle for customer acquisition now because of the changes in Meta's algorithms and the changes in the cost structures of acquiring. And so I think it's going to be a bit more difficult. So I think you will see a lot of companies that are 20 to 30 million in revenue. They're great companies with great brands. They're just plateauing in their growth. And so celebrity becomes a really interesting way to drive that and to grow at Aviation is a great example of that. So I think you'll see more and more people doing it. I think when that happens, to me, the biggest question is, is that person investing in the company? Has that person written a check? You, you know, 
the, the old joke is it's, it's not uncommon that celebrities are mostly used to signing the back of checks, not the front of them. <laughs> and so you want to, you want to know in almost every company we've ever built, our talent partners and co-founders have written a check into those businesses. And that to me is really important when it's an existing company and you're bringing in a partner who's going to take equity off of the cap table. They're going to be seriously involved and really treated as a partner. You want them writing a check because it's, it's got downstream signals right down to the consumer. If the, you know, consumers are smart now, they understand how this works. And if they know that Ryan Reynolds wrote a serious check into aviation, that says something that said, you know, if you, if you watch just going down Ryan for a second, if you watch welcome, uh, welcome to Wrexham, Mm-hmm. A lot of the conversation in that, that endears you to the, per, to the project and endears you to their relationship is how much money they have at risk at Rexham. You know, there was in last season, there was a couple episodes where they were like, if we don't get promoted, we're screwed. Like mm-hmm. we have serious problems financially. And I think that consumers can feel that they can feel, and that's a part of the authenticity story. Yeah, you know, it really is. Yeah. And so when you work with uh, CAA and, you know, when you discuss internally, is there like a a specific profile of the ideal celebrity entrepreneur that has kind of all the hallmarks of an individual that can handle the volatility of entrepreneurship and the ups and downs and the emotional roller coaster? Or are celebrities kind of already primed for that because they work in an industry that has a lot of that already. Yeah, I, I think in the last three years, more of the clients understand what it means to be an entrepreneur. And so they understand the work involved. And so I think five years ago, it was harder to explain to a client like, no, 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 this is your company. Like you're going to buyers meetings, you're doing sales calls. Like Now I think the clients are more sophisticated about understanding that. So they know which side of the fence, like they're more interested in licensing endorsement or they're more interested in building an entrepreneurial empire. And then I think not to sound like too trite about it, but I think that's the biggest thing you're looking for is does this person actually understand what it means to be an entrepreneur? Because that's 50% of the battle. And then I think the rest of it are things we've talked about And I I would add in one piece to that puzzle, which is, are they willing to interact with a community? Because the ones that are willing to interact with the community in a meaningful way drive much better results than the ones that are seen as behind a firewall and unattainable. Right. Like a hands-on kind of attitude. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if I'm an entrepreneur and I have, you know, zero experience working with a celebrity. Um, but I understand that I want someone, you know, a celebrity to kind of work with me on like a partner level and, you know, there is maybe some potential interest. What kind of due diligence is required from the entrepreneur side, uh, that is looking to kind of bring on, uh, a new face and a talent that, at that level and kind of, you know, what are the risks and red flags to watch out for? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a really tricky problem, right? Because the answer depends on how in demand your company is as an entrepreneur. So if you're a really strong revenue, well-known company, you're going to get much more access to the diligence you need. If you are just coming in blind and you're a smaller company and saying, you know, I really want a celebrity partner or a celebrity client, um, the diligence you're going to be able to do is a bit more limited, I think. So it's partially dependent on how in demand the company is itself. It's, it's you know, not to be blunt about it, but it is a little bit of a power dynamic. Mm-hmm. And I think when you can do the proper diligence, I think you want to make sure you have really, you talk to the agency that represents that particular client and you get as much audience segmentation data as you can. You know, make sure you understand, because you, you, you may think having a superstar on a product is amazing, but you may find out that they're, if it's food and beverage, you may find out that their audience on food and beverage is super small. 
and the conversion is really bad. So you want to check things like what's their conversion, like what's their engagement rate on social, because big audiences often equate to low engagement. And if you can find high engagement and big audience, that's an interesting place. So the more you can drill into their audience and their social metrics, I think the better you'll be. And then I think you want to really be careful um, if it's a partnership and they're joining you as a partner, you want to be careful to not set the expectation that it's just a marketing relationship. So you don't want to create some big marketing obligation sheet like you must appear, four posts, and you know those are license, more licensing and endorsement. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's it's getting to know the person, really understanding their audience, understanding <clears throat> like you would hiring anyone, what are they good at? What are they good at? What do they want to be doing? And then time expectations. That's probably the most important thing. Like, yeah. You want to understand what's their shoot schedule? Are they on tour? Are they, you know, are they in the middle of an NBA season? Like really understanding what they can and can't do so that you don't get annoyed that you just gave 30% of your company or 50% or 2% to someone who is not available. And, yeah. and you gotta you gotta really manage that expectation very clearly because sometimes you need stuff quickly and this person is, you know, in the middle of a tour. And it's really difficult for them. And then the last piece of diligence I would do is get to know their team, get to understand their entourage really well, know who their agents are, know who their management is, their financial management, their lawyers. And the one thing I would tell you that I've learned doing this, and and I happen to unfortunately be a lawyer myself, these things can go wrong very quickly when lawyers get involved. And so even though you may have a situation where an agent loves it, a client loves it, the manager loves it, but the lawyer comes in and just spoils the whole thing, comes up with something that like spooks the other other parties. And so I think you want to really get to know the lawyer that's going to work on it well as well and get a sense of their commercial acumen. That's really important to getting these deals done. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And what about, uh, you know, any safeguards that can be put into place in, you know, instances of like PR kind of crisis moments where a celebrity has lost public goodwill and trust because of a past social media post, or, you know, we've seen instances where there's worse things than that. So like, what about those instances where the, that becomes a big liability to the company? You mean like if someone goes all Elon on you? Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> exactly. Um, look, I, I think in the licensing and endorsement world, there's lots of protections that are put in place for that stuff contractually. It's I think it's well-traveled territory. In the world of building companies, I think the best way to look at this is you're going to hold that person to a standard as a partner as you would any other employee. So if somebody goes off and does something nuts, you have things in your employment agreements, things in your shareholder agreements that are all protections. And if that person sits on the board, I actually like the idea. There's a bit of a mixed view on this. I like having a celebrity client on the board of directors of the business because then they have a fiduciary legal obligation to act in the best interest of the company. And if that's Mm. breached, you have clear things you can do. Same thing as if they're an officer, but I like them to be officers and directors, and they're not always willing to do both. But you want to make sure if they're an officer and director, you have levers the same way you would with any other shareholder employee director, and you would exercise those. And I think if you go too far into that at the beginning or concerns about that, it sets a bad tone for the partnership. I think it's good to talk about them and what happens, but if you try to ring fence a celebrity co-founder to say, well, if you behave this way, you're gonna be treated this way, which is different than every other employee in the company or any other shareholder, I think gets to be problematic. And I do think you have enough protections in traditional shareholder and director mechanisms that you can treat them effectively. And there's a risk, right? There's a risk. Your CTO walks out the door and steals information. There's a risk that, you know, you've seen this risk with Tesla and what's gone on with with Elon. You know, he has had 
issues, you know, with respect to the media. And, and you can see it even with non-traditional celebrity. So I think that's the way you protect yourself. And you just have, you do it legally with, with traditional metrics that you treat everyone equally. And you have a real upfront adult conversation in the beginning about it. Yeah. Yeah. I was having, um, I had an interview with, uh, for the show previously with, uh, Jens Greed at Skims, and we were talking about how important it is, you know, that the product can stand on its own, regardless of the talent that's associated with it. And I think that, you know, we have a, a similar theme where you talk about, like, you know, market need and market fit as well. So in your perspective, what do you think at the end of the day makes a truly great brand or brand experience with longevity? that you know can live past brand or, right so brand or product or both uh both yeah so let's start at brand because i think brand is your sort of capsule that captures all of it so i think great longevity and brand is reliant on a few things one is the product world class and great and 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 by the way a lot of people talk about that I think what you're really looking for is like, okay, what are the NPS scores of the business? What's the repeat order rates? When you look at reviews are over 75 to 80% of them positive because you can't please everyone. There's always mm -hmm. someone who, you know, this does, it, it, there's always some personalization you're never going to meet, you know, you're not going to be great hundred percent of the time. So I think you want to look at that particularly the product, the product fit, is it, is it working well? I think the thing, to me, that's table stakes. The thing that builds a great brand that you can really work on, one is narrative and understanding how to tell a story around the creation of the brand, around why it exists, why it started, how it serves its end users. Like that part is really valuable and very few companies are good at it very few companies like Patagonia is amazing at it. In my view, they're, they're incredible narrators. I, I think yeah. um, Skims is incredibly good at narration. Yeah. The other, the other piece of it, which I would argue is the, the biggest lost skill set in all of this is delivering wow experiences to customers, truly delivering that. And if you think about your brand life, like the things you buy every day, very few companies deliver you some kind of wow experience. It's very rare. And I think the ones that can do that and go the extra mile, and that can be unboxing. It can be um, going in and above and beyond expectation to say, like Apple's very good at this, by the way. They, they manipulate their outcomes in a really positive brand way. So for example, if you buy a new MacBook, like I just did, they're going to tell you a date for delivery and they will 95% of the time be earlier than that. And they do it on purpose because A, they're trying to bake in some extra time, but they know that you're going to have this little surprise and delight moment, which is like, oh shit, I thought the computer was coming on Monday, but now it's coming a week earlier. It just makes you feel good. It's, it's a wow experience, which they've completely manipulated. And I mean that in a good way, you know, to yeah, deliver yeah. that. And, you know, the unboxing of an Apple product. But then you can look at things like airlines and hotels, which have these moments to really win you over with wow. And they very rarely do, you know, like the handwritten note or I'll tell you a great, one of the best experiences I've ever had. Um, I was staying at a Four Seasons in Dubai and they, at that time, I was part shareholder in a professional soccer team in England, and I never told them that. And I got into the room, and there was this huge chocolate thing that they had made out of the logo of the club, of the football team. Wow. And the, and the answer to those things sometimes is just Google. Like, do your work. See who's coming there. See who the client is. Understand them. So there's that delivering wow is so little it can be so small sometimes but it can be the fundamental building block to building brand yeah and, yeah. and i and i think Definitely. more founders don't spend enough time talking about that and people remember those moments for years and years after they've happened and it stays with you 
and also 100%. a bad experience too. The opposite of yeah. it too. Hundred percent. So I mean, like we've talked about, you know, bringing on celebrities and and as as part of a, a business or working with celebrities, but from a from a big picture standpoint, really, it's like how do we work with people and how do we, um, you know, set up effective partnerships and everything. So, in what ways do you think your work really reflects larger lessons around attracting and retaining and cultivating talent, celebrity or not? Yeah, I mean, it's very di- you know, it's very. I always believe this is market driven. I think when you're in a down market and there's lots of people available, you operate one way versus when it's a super busy market and lot, you know, lot the unemployment rates are really low and people are not looking for jobs. You have to operate in a bit of a different way, meaning your levers are a little bit different when you're asking people to leave something that they're already at. But, but I think putting the market condition aside, the thing that really for, for us, and by the way, I'm the worst leader of, of all time. Like most of the, I like how I didn't <laughs> to emphasize that point, but um, you, you know, I do not consider myself a fantastic leader, nor really a people person. I'm rather quiet and reclusive often a lot of the time. So I, I think when I look at it, you want to have people around, you want to be able to provide people with something that is mission driven and bigger than themselves. And because if you are building a beauty brand or you're building an alcohol brand and you have two of those equal, you know, one's got celebrity A and one's got celebrity B, one's got a great formulation, the other's got a great formulation. The the question is when you're trying to recruit someone to come into that business, who's gonna be the one that you want that's that's really sees this as a mission like there's something behind the company that has meaning to them and value and i think that's been the biggest lesson is when you're under the age of 40 i think now that the values of the organization and the leadership is incredibly important and I, and and that you know you could be a complete right-wing nut who wants to work with other right-wing nuts, or you could be a complete left-wing nut and want to work with left-wing nuts, or you could be environmentally focused and want to have a great environmental mission behind a company, or um, recycling in fashion. I mean, at, at some point, the thing that makes the difference, in, I think, in leadership and in bringing good people around you is they have to understand the values of the organization. And that can be the business values, the ethical values, the moral values, all of those things need to be understood. And if you're good at communicating those, you end up building more cohesive teams. And and I think the other thing that certainly I've learned over the last few years is that when you're running a company now as a CEO, you, you have to be able to sell at a level that because your real job is people and sales effectively communication of the vision people and sales and if you can't do all three of those things you shouldn't be the leader in the company and i think as you go to bigger organizations like if you think about public companies the job of the ceo has completely changed like they have to be geopolitical experts and they have Mm -hmm. to understand um historical context and things that you wouldn't it's almost like in a larger company, this, the old CEO's job is really the COO's job now. And the CEO is really the person that's almost like the head of state who's really going to act like a statesperson and drive people in a direction that again is tied to values. Like you, you look, I'll go back to Elon for a second because I think he's the best flip-flop case study. He's a quasi-celebrity. He's one of the wealthiest people in the world. And you have a lot of people who dislike him for the decisions that he makes. But at the end of the day, his values are quite clear. And the people who work for him know what those values are. And the customers know what they are. So like, I always go back to this moment when the Cybertruck was first announced four years ago, there was a very famous press conference where he released it. And it was there was all this buildup around having bulletproof glass. 
And so yeah. you remember that moment he got on yeah. stage and he chucks the rock at the window and it breaks and he kind of <laughs>, laughs it off. And then he has his uh, lieutenant chuck a rock at the other window and it breaks. And it was a laugh moment. But if that was Ford, that, that product would have been pulled. The next day, that was the largest pre-order in Tesla's history because what Elon is amazing at and what to me makes great leaders and great companies is if a good leader can take, and this is going to be co contrary to, to what, what you may think, and I get in trouble for saying this sometimes, but the old world used to say under promise and over deliver. I think that's true if you're like a heart surgeon and an accountant and, you know, in the ranks, but if you're really leading you want to grossly overpromise and half deliver because your overpromise is, and those two things should never meet. They should consistently do this. And that's why Elon was so successful because if you look at the, from the humanoid robots to the Cybertruck, he's constantly breadcrumbing where the company is going to a bigger vision. And he's slowly delivering on that stage by stage. Like I've owned a Tesla for, nine years and I was promised full self-driving nine years ago and I still don't have it properly working, but it's so much better than anything else. And I can see where it's going that I stay connected to the values of that business. Hmm. Really interesting. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, I guess, you know, speaking about mission, you know, the, uh, the our whole show and everything that we kind of do in terms of our content and, and what we do here at the at Gloria is really focused on that. So what is your mission at the end of the day? Um, look, I, I, it's a, that's a complicated answer for <laughs> me. I think right now um, I am most interested, like my personal mission is to do right by my investors and to, to make sure that we are building. And the way that I do that is by making sure, and my stakeholders, you know, you know, CAA, my investors, my, the people that work with us and our partners, it's by making sure that we're building things that people care about and that we're really thoughtful about recruiting people. And, and, and so that's the kind of business answer. The, the more world-driven answer is, we're really focused on companies that have triple wins to them because one, I think it's the right thing to do. And two, I think clients find it easier to join those. But when we build a company, I want to understand what good it's doing in the world. So high, if you use that as an example, that shower business was built uh, really on the understanding that while we thought this was going to be a super cool product and we could really revolutionize healthcare and beauty, we realized that water usage, was a much bigger risk than we realized. Like we're going to run out of water long before this planet burns up. And if you think about consumer use of water, like put aside manufacturing and agriculture, because those are large scale users, but just you and I, we're the third biggest abusers of water. And our number one use of that is the shower. Hmm. The shower is the single largest threat to water security in, in, in our environment based on our use. And we figured that there was a way that we could fix that that we could actually give you a better experience while actually reducing your water usage by just simply making you aware of what you were using. So don't try to give you low flow and don't try to mess with your experience. Just be mindful of when you get in and when you get out. And we've proven mathematically that if we do that well, we'll reduce your water usage by 30 to 34%. So high, the mandate of high, beyond just delivering a killer experience is to be the single largest contributor to the UN's water reduction goals for consumers. We want to be the single largest contributor to that. So we have our business mission and then we have our, what is the company value and what are we really trying to change in the world around those, those businesses? And so I, I, they, they should do that. They should unite into one, mm -hmm. but they are sort of uh, parallel paths in some respect. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, last question here. What is your own personal definition of glory? Of, 
That's interesting. Um, my answer would would maybe be a little bit different than, than what you might usually hear. So I uh, happen to be Jewish and there's an old adage in the religion, which is the highest form of charity is anonymous. And so if you were ranking the philanthropic nature of an act financially or otherwise, the highest order of giving is anonymous. So slapping your name on a building, you helped it. It's great. It's you know, nothing wrong with that. The philanthropy is great. But in the order of philanthropy, giving the donation anonymously to let them name it whatever they want is, is the highest order. And I sort of believe that's true for glory as well. Like, I think for me, uh, glory is uh, an emotion that you experience after accomplishment. And so I am the happiest when my companies are performing well, when the people who are working with us are happy and feeling content, and we're doing something positive in those businesses for the world. I think that that to me is is a desirable outcome that I would look at as like glory. Like that to me is glory. And I think the point I was making about anonymous is the more you can put yourself in the background in that story, the more your glory meter raises in my view personally. I think that's the most it the most interesting stories are the ones where you talk to people quietly and find out, you know, remember that huge success or remember that rocket that got launched where it was actually this guy or this woman who did it. This was the brain, this was the person. Mm. And they're kind of the you, you know, they're they're sheltered around somebody who may be getting the public attention, but that glory is more anonymous. So I think that's kind of how I see it. And I'm not always successful at doing that, but that's kind of the target for me. That's great. I love that. No one's given that answer. So that's really um, refreshing. And um, yeah, thank you so much for your time and your insight. And uh, it's been really lovely chatting with you and um, learning so much more about this world. I love it. It was such a great chat. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And we'll, uh, we never even got to talk about Welch's candy store in Banff. (laughs) For our second, for our second chat then. (laughs) I appreciate you having me. Very kind of you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Leonard. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you liked, who you'd like to see on the show, and anything else you want to share. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to your podcast. Until next time, ask yourself, what's your mission?